Director of photography Alan Jacobson photographs narrative and documentary projects with an authentic natural eye and a sensitive curiosity. His camera work is masterful, intuitive, and intimate, capturing the sensory story in each powerful frame. Most recently, he wrapped the upcoming The Loneliest Whale, The Search for 52, a feature-length documentary about the loneliest whale in the world, with director Joshua Zeman. Jacobson has earned film festival honors for many of his films. Alan Jacobson, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. We're here talking, I guess, principally about well, your body of work, but also your documentary, The Loneliest Whale. Uh, just tell us how this project came to be and what were some of the unique challenges of that adventure? Well, thank you. Yeah, The Loneliest Whale was a wonderful quest from the beginning. Um, the director, Josh Zeman, who I've known for a long time, we kind of came up together in the New York indie film world in the 90s. He had heard about this story uh, of this whale that had been, well, the story starts and, he, and no one even knew what it was, but there was the Navy as part of the kind of the tail end of the, of the Cold War had this vast sonar listening array under the oceans and they were listening for Russian submarines and it was all very covert, a classified operation that really spanned the world. So there were, there were Navy people listening to the ocean, to the world's oceans 24 seven, 365 days a year as a, as an, you know, an intelligence operation. And in the, at some point they started hearing this sound that they didn't recognize at all. And they, thought it might be some new secret technology that is, you know, being leveraged. But they, the Navy had some biologists on staff that were able to say like, oh, no, this is not mechanical. This is biological. And that at that point, it was surmised that this was some sort of new creature that had never been uh, discovered before or listened to at least. And because it was such a unique sound, this 52 hertz frequency, they could track it very accurately. And they tracked the sound going up and down the coast of, of the Americas for like 12 years, figuring out that it was probably a whale of some type. So yeah, for 12 years, this, this whale had been tracked, calling out at this frequency that no other whales could, could understand. And so this idea of this lonely whale started to kind of propagate throughout the culture. And Josh heard about that and came to me at the time, no one knew if this whale still existed because the, that program had been shut down, the listening program. And it hadn't been heard from in a number of years. So no one really knew if it was still alive or even existed. So, so Josh came to me with this great idea of like, this, is, this could be a way to talk about, you know, loneliness and isolation and disconnectedness that we are kind of coming to experience in this very connected world. You know, the irony that humans are, we're connected with everyone at any time. I, you know, you can reach out and speak and see anyone on the planet almost any time. Yet we're still having trouble being connected and we're being divided. And it's, you know, that's, there's complications with this, this super connectedness. So Josh wanted to use this whale story to kind of talk about some of these human issues. But at the time, we didn't know if the whale existed. So that was going to be more of kind of an abstract metaphor in, as part of a film. And so Josh had kind of reached out to me because I think he had known some of the work I was doing. I, he had seen an early cut of my film, Strong Island, which we were working with these ideas of how do you film the unfilmable. Strong Island's a film about a miscarriage of justice that happened 20 years ago and the systemic racism that allowed that still allows that to happen today. Yet the story was 20 years ago. We didn't have any footage from that time. There was no archival. And, and, and we wanted to, again, use that story as a way to talk about a bigger systemic problems. So we were doing work in that film that was very abstract and kind of contemplative, presenting, presenting imagery to the audience that would allow them to kind of bring their own story and their own imagery to, to, this, to these ideas. And it's something I really, really like in my work, like how do we film the unfilmable thing or how, what can we offer the audience to you know, join in and have to kind of lean in and think about these ideas without it just being such a didactic, you know, presentation of, of facts or outrage or something, but, you know, really inviting that investigation from the audience. So that was something that I, I'm very excited by. And Josh had seen an early cut of that film. So I think he had this understanding like, oh, this is something that maybe we could 
that Alan could help with then in terms of how to visualize a story, which, you know, is maybe unfilmable. And, and so we were working in that mode for a while. Meanwhile, Josh had done some work in, you know, reaching out to scientists. And, and at some point in that, there was some discovery that the whale seemed to maybe still be alive. So at that point, we were like, oh, wow, now, you know, now we could actually tell a much more, you know, contemporary story about, you know, we could include that element that like, oh, there, there could be this journey, this quest for uh, discovery. So at that point, we launched a, a Kickstarter with Adrian Grenier and was very successful. A lot of people really responded to this, this story and to this idea of the whale. So it suddenly became this very connected project about disconnection. And we were able to kind of mount this expedition to go look for the whale. And so at that point, you know, we, I was able to bring in some of them kind of much more experiential and immediate documentary techniques, you know, of, of having the camera in, in the scene and some ver and verite work. And so the film has these kind of two elements where we're talking about big ideas in kind of an abstract way. And we're also on very much on an adventure, you know, it's an, it's an action film of, you know, high seas and, you know, crashing waves and, you know, mystery, underwater vistas, and, you know, just the amazing experience of the world. So that's how it started. And that's kind of how we, we started putting it together. And, you know, a film like this, the films I like to work on, I, lo I love it when you think you're going to tell one kind of a story, and then it, the film like demands, you know, a change or a, or an adaptation, or it demands to be heard in a different way. So the fact that we thought we were going to be making one thing, and then it was pulled into, you know, a combination of things is really exciting for me. And I think, you know, being open to that, that process of discovery is, is something that's really exciting in, 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 in documentary work. And it's why, you know, I keep, I keep wanting to do documentaries because like the scientists in the film, you know, you, we don't even sometimes know what we're looking for until we're out there looking for it. So yeah, that's why I was so pleased that Josh invited me along and we, we got to have this grand adventure and now get to share it with people. I, I hope people really are able to use the film to kind of think about these these big ideas while being, you know, very entertained. It seems definitely like, it feels very much like a 21st century Moby Dick, of course, with a different sense of longing, in less of the vengefulness, but the metaphysical elements, and that, as you rightly say, you really do bring viewers on this adventure. And I like that. That's what I love about uh, documentary filmmaking and then other filmmaking, which is is evolving and discovering a process of discovery as you make it. And what you do beautifully capture with your lens is the this sense there is even, as you say, an uh, imaginative act, the unfilmable, the presence of an absence that really then engages the viewer's imagination because we don't know but we can kind of have a feeling of what it's like to be these oceanographers you know on this quest and so that must be so exciting you know with our one planet podcast we think a lot about the natural world and a number of our students are you know environmental studying environmental science or public policy and it really so beautifully done in this film because it allows us to have empathy for one lonely whale. And it's not like, you know, when you hear some of the other statistics, like, oh my gosh, eight, you know, million deaths a year from air pollution or whatever, it becomes almost so vast, you can't take it in. But to put it in context, you know, these should be like emperors of the sea. And yet, it can't, there's no, there's no others. It's like, it's like lost and full of longing. It's, it's really sad. So it's very beautifully brings across that message of like, what have we done with our greediness to this planet? And it's not there for us just to take whatever we can take from it. Yeah, indeed. I hope that the film and the story can, can kind of help people get their heads around these huge ideas, which are, you know, pretty terrifying and just almost hopeless to think about. What can we do? Are we on on this track? And what, you know, what have we done to the Earth? And I think you know, science scientists are very much starting to agree that it, it's getting to the point where it's almost too late. So, can humans see that far in ahead? Can we can we understand you know the the, the track we're on in time? I don't know, but I think it's I'm willing to kind of use whatever tools possible to try to help that conversation happen. So. 
you know, the idea of this anthropomorphized whale that people can identify with, I think is, is, is fine. Let's, let's lean into whatever we need to try to get these, you know, to people to pay attention to this. And it's an interesting tension because, you know, in science, and we work with some of the best, you know, marine biologists and scientists um, in the world that have been studying whales in the ocean for decades, you know, they, there's a very strong resistance in the science world to any kind of anthropomorphizing. You know, you don't want, it's, it's just not scientifically accurate or useful to put these kind of human desires onto these animals. And that was something that, you know, we wrestled with in the film because, you know, yes, I respect that, but we're, you know, we're using this whale as an invitation for people to come on this and understand these scientific ideas. So the scientists were kind of like, well, you know, I don't want to refer to the whale as a, as a he or as lonely or, you know, they're very resistant to that for good reason. But we were leaning into that idea as a way to make it less scary and less off-putting to people. You know, like you say, here's one, here's one life that I, we can concentrate on for a bit, which will help me, you know, process my life and what, and, and, the, and what I can do in this fight. So, you know, it's a, it's a device, but it's also, uh, it's true. I mean, there's this, this whale is, you know, was out there and, or is out there. And, you know, it's, I think it's something we can all identify this longing for connection and understanding and discovery. So I still wake up thinking some mornings about what's, what's 52 up to, what's the way, you know, what's the loneliest whale doing this morning, you know, is, is he out there or she out there? And I also an interesting point that I think, you know, in the film, I think it's maybe a reflection of the male dominated world of science that we're still trying to dig our way out of that the whale is referred to as a he. Of course, we don't know if it's the gender of the whale. And, um, but I thought it was interesting that the film on it, that, that, that the story has always been told from this kind of male perspective that, the, that it's a, that it's a gut, it's a dude whale out there, you know, swimming around. So it just, I think it points to a lot of kind of the, the challenges that we have as humans and that we're still working on. So yeah, I'm grateful to the whale for being this, you know, kind of invitation to, to explore these ideas. Hopefully the film does it justice. And I have I don't really have a problem with the anthropomorphizing. I guess another way to say it is that if you look into the eyes of an animal, that you know just instinctively that there's a person in there, a person. And we think in human terms, they think in animal terms, but there's a person on the other side of that exchange. And so in this uh, scene from the documentary, you were tagging whales. Tell us a little bit about this. Uh, yeah. So as part of the attempt to kind of understand where the loneliest whale, where 50, we call the whale 52 in the film for 52 hertz. To, to, as part of this process, to try to understand where 52 might be, we go out looking for whales in general. And, you know, as one of the scientists says, like, it's hard enough to find any whale in the ocean. I mean, the, the ocean is just so massive and, and, you know, and the whales are so few relatively that just finding one whale is really hard, let alone finding one particular whale. So we had to start with just finding whales. And sometimes the scientists go out to look for whales and don't find any, you know, for days. So first we start, they start by using sonar buoys, which sonar buoys, which go into the water and then listen again for these sounds. And when they hear the sounds of the calls of the whales that travel, a call of a whale can travel thousands, uh, tens of thousands of miles across the ocean. And so these, these sonar buoys can pick up that sound. And if you have two of them in the water, you can triangulate where the sound's coming from. And then, and then, and then they jump into these fast boats and try to get over there. And then the behavior of the whales is when they're, when they're traveling, they come up to the surface to breathe and they make a series of like five shallow dives where they come up, they breathe, they go down for, I think maybe 20 seconds, come back up, breathe again, go down, for another 20 seconds come back and they do that five times and then after the fifth time there's a little bit of a rear up and then there's a deep dive and they're down there for many many minutes uh, you know half hour or something sometimes and i thought it was amazing because you know we got to learn this 
we got to learn this pattern of the diving once and that was very helpful for me to know because I knew where to kind of point the camera to try to, to, to predict where they were going to come up and try to get that shot. And then they would dive down and the scientists would all kind of exhale and relax because now they knew that they were going to have some minutes before before you would hopefully see it, you know, a mile or two down the water, come back up again. And I would say, well, okay, now, so that now they're on their deep dive, what, where are they going and what are they doing? And the scientists were like, well, you know, we don't know. We don't really know. It was amazing to me because these are people that have been studying whales for 40 years, 50 years, and humans have been really paying attention to whales and their, and their behavior for 50 years. And we still don't know. We still don't know where they go, where they're, where they mate, where the, where they're born. There's just this incredible mystery about the, the deep ocean. And to say that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do the, what's under the deep ocean. So this great mystery of that's right in front of us on our planet. And it's also just so essential to life. Like we need to understand the ocean because it's, it's literally giving us all life. So when the whales are at the surface, the scientists try to get a tag on the whale, which is like a little either suction cup or a pronged little device, handmade device with a camera and a microphone and GPS tracking on it and the sensors and whatnot. And so when the whale comes up during that little, you know, 10 second rise, they try to get this, they try to get the tag on the back of the whale. And it turns out it's really hard to do. <laughs> you know, you have to be you have to be on this small, fast boat with the tag on the end of a really long pole. And as the whale kind of st starts to rise up, the boat has to get up to speed and you're, pace you're pacing alongside the whale. And then there's about a, you know, four or five second window where the back of the whale is above the water where they try to smack the tag on. And uh, it's really hard to do. And we went out to try to start doing this and to film it. And, uh, you know, as you see in the film, it's just, it takes many attempts. If you're able to make that connection and get the, and get the tag on the whale, then the tag and the whale disappear. And hopefully the tag is recording its data. And then hopefully you can find that tag again, because it's not any kind of uplink or you know webcast or anything it goes down in the ocean and it's gone for however many days that it might stay on the whale and so then then the trick is trying to find that tag and what they often do is they, they, they pop off they fall off the whale at some point and then they're just floating um, in the ocean and so then they use radio signals and tracking beacons to kind of try to find the, to find the tag and then if they find the tag and if it's if it had recorded and if it's not damaged, then they can extract this, this imagery and data from the tag. So we have footage in the film from the tag. So like after the whale goes down underwater, we can kind of get a sense of what's going on down there. But the tags only stay on for maybe, you know, a, a dozen hours or maybe a day. And so we're again, we're still limited in what we know about what goes on under there. And it's I think it's kind of a great metaphor to you know, these mysteries is like, we can see what's on the surface and we can, and we think we understand that, but there's just so much that we just don't, you know, we just don't yet know. And so this curiosity of like discovery and the scientific method is, I think, you know, something we, we just have to lean into and really, you know, keep, keep diving, diving into. I'm Lila Moskowski, a student at Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, and a collaborator with the creative process. Hearing Alan Jacobson discuss the mystery of the ocean and the initial uncertainty behind filming the loneliest whale resonated with me as a biology major, environmental activist, and avid snorkeler. Ever since I was little, I have been fascinated with the ocean and the myriad of species that inhabit it. The world under the water is so unique and exploring it has always intrigued me. I feel like I'm in a different universe when I'm in and around the ocean and am passionate about studying it more to make it a little less mysterious. As Jacobson mentioned, I too have learned about how much of the ocean is undiscovered and I can't help but think about what we still have not seen. His work to film this whale makes me feel like we as a society are moving in the right direction towards learning more about the precious ocean habitat that makes up a majority of our planet. Additionally, 
As a nature photographer myself, I appreciate Jacobson's willingness to dive into filming something that is so unpredictable and wild. His goal of filming the unfilmable also stuck with me because it shows a true connection to his subject matter and creates room for a more in-depth story to be told. To me, storytelling is an incredibly important tool that helps to convey knowledge in a compelling way, while also forming a sense of a shared experience between the creator and the audience. His focus on a single creature creates a powerful perspective and connection, making it easy to visualize and to focus on the negative impact we humans are having on one animal. From my perspective, these things go hand in hand when it comes to activism. In Jacobson's case, sharing the story of the loneliest whale allows for the general public to learn more about the oceans in crisis and motivates people to get involved in efforts to help by creating sympathy for this creature. I hope to be able to as effectively share information through my own work, such as my photography and my writing, to make people more aware of what is going on with the world around us in its current state of need and to help save the oceans from peril. Well, speaking about diving into the great mysteries of this planet, it seems like you found and made a career for yourself that is like a, the perfect adventure story. As I think about it, you have the great privilege to be going on so many varied adventures uh, around the world. And you said started as like an in independent filmmaking, you know, what they call narrative filmmaking, though, of course, documentaries are narratives as well. It's just like the spontaneity of real life. But just, you know, go into some of those other adventures that you've had through uh, your documentaries, like be it Racing Dreams, Point and Shoot, you've mentioned others, Toe to Toe, you know, what what was it like? What was your approach for some of these other projects? And, and what do you, what drew you then to, you know, documentary filmmaking in, in, as opposed to the other cinematography and, and narrative films? Yeah, thank you. You're right. It's, a, it's such a privilege to be able to use the camera as an excuse to have these amazing experiences, you know, and I have such a great job because I, you know, I love being able to go out and discover something and bring the audience along. And honestly, the audience brings me along because I wouldn't be there if people weren't curious uh, about seeing things. So, you know, the camera is a great kind of wedge into these moments. You know, I started out, I came to New York, I went to NYU film school and studying cinema. And I've always, I think, kind of been not too particular about what cinema is or what, you know, what the what what documentary is versus narrative. I've always really enjoyed films that don't seem to care about that or mix that up as, as well as like experimental film. When I was in New York, I was seeing a lot of experimental film and a lot of abstract and hybrid kind of work and, and visual arts of all kinds. So, you know, I think there's a really wonderful cross pollination between all these things. And I really like being able to go from documentary to narrative to commercial work and um, more experimental stuff. I love filming with artists and the process and music. And I think that the diversity of different styles and, and approaches is, is really wonderful and something that's really important to me. I came out of school and started working in narrative film to kind of start paying off bills. And I, you know, I really love that. I love cinema as a storytelling tool. And I, I feel like like Roger Ebert said, cinema is a great empathy machine. It manufactures empathy. And so, you know, whether it's a scripted project or a documentary, I just, I love this idea of trying to help someone, an audience feel something that they maybe weren't expecting. In narrative, it's arguably easier to do that because you have all the tools of cinema with music and editing and camera movement and great acting. And somebody like Spielberg's a master at it, right? Like everybody who goes to the cinema has a exactly the same experience in a Spielberg movie. Everyone laughs at the same time and everyone cries at the same time. It's very good with that machinery. And I was working in New York on, on these kind of smaller, you know, indie sundance -y kind of movies. And I really love that work. I, I started out doing lighting. And so I was working with great DPs who I was able to learn so much from and really lean into my love of lighting and the magic of, of light and how that can be used as a storytelling device. So that was really wonderful, you know, and I really enjoyed lighting and I was really good at it. And so those projects were getting bigger and bigger and more complicated. And it was getting to the point where it was getting a little unwieldy. And, you know, I, I felt I was losing something about my instincts and my spontaneity. When I was ready to 
get back into shooting, I really wanted to pivot into documentary because I wanted to get in touch with spontaneity and instinct and, you know, being able to respond to the room in a way. Because, you know, narrative films, the machinery can get very, very big and overwhelming. And it's, it's like this big lumbering ship, which is really hard to turn and it's really hard to be flexible. And I was at a point where I was, I was looking, you know, I'd go to scout a location and say like, well, I can't light this without 47 lights and a crew of 20. And I thought, what, what have I become? This is getting crazy. So documentary for me was inspiration to kind of get back in touch with more instinctual things. And so, yeah, I've been able to kind of follow my interests and my hearts into stories that I think are interesting and important. I really love work telling the stories of people who haven't always been able to have their stories told. I like trying to tell, you know, tell stories that reflect the complicatedness of, of being human. And, you know, I like stories that are, have a lot of gray in the middle that aren't just black and white and that are complicated and messy. And so I like working with filmmakers that, you know, want to let that messiness show up in the film that they want, you, you know, you want those, you want the complications of life to be in your film. So yeah, I've, we did a great film with a dear friend of mine, Marshall Curry, called Racing Dreams, which is about preteen race car drivers in the, in the American South. And these were 9, 10, 11-year-old kids at the time. Where I grew up in Montana, 9, 10, 11-year-old kids want to play Little League baseball and be baseball stars or basketball stars. Well, in some parts of the world, kids want to be race car drivers. And so you know, we were, we were this whole world of NASCAR, which I was surprised to learn is like the second largest spectator sport in the world behind football. And it's something that I didn't know very much about living in New York. And, and so, you know, we were down south and meeting these racers and meeting their families and being in their homes and eating with them. And it's just a wonderful way to kind of see the world. And then for a number of years, I was traveling with Anthony Bourdain, the, the, the chef and author and uh, raconteur. And, you know, again, here's a curious person who wants to wants to discover kind of the messiness of life and the messiness of, of, of humanity. So we had great travels and, you know, following Tony's interest, the show was able to get more political as it as it went on and we moved to CNN. And so it's just a great job because, you know, I get to I get to have all these amazing experiences with amazing people and meet the most coolest, interesting people in the world, whether they be a teenager or a rock star or, or a person working in a basement somewhere. So yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It's complicated too. I don't want to pretend it's not because it's, it's a lot of travel. It's hard to be away. It's hard to be coming into someone's life and, you know, working with them really intensely, recording their images and their feelings and their, and their soul, hopefully. And then, and then leaving, you know, there's this incredible responsibility with your subjects of how can you honorably capture the story in a responsible way and um, make it a good experience for them and, you know, make it something hopefully growthful and positive. And so it's something that I struggle with a lot is, you know, this kind of this idea of responsibility of, you know, parachuting into somewhere. I do this every day, but to a lot of the people that I'm lucky to film, this is probably, this is like a very big deal for them. And it, they might be the most vulnerable they've ever been. It's a real gift to offer yourself to the cameras like that. So it's complicated. And I think sometimes I still struggle with, you know, some of the, the feelings around this. It's, you know, documentary in a way is an extractive industry. You're, you're extracting people's stories and it's not always a fair exchange because people trust you with their story. But once it's in the editing room, you know, there's a lot that can happen. So I try to work with filmmakers who that kind of moral responsibility is very strong and, you know, who try to honor your subject by saying like, look, we're not going to tell one side of your story. We're going to try to tell the whole, we're going to try to tell some gray area here. And hopefully it's an honest portrayal. That's the goal. And, you know, we've, I've been lucky to work with filmmakers who, you know, when we, it's always a big moment when you, you know, you want to show the, the completed or almost completed film to the subjects to get their feedback and find out if they want any changes or anything like that. And, you know, I've been happy that a lot, almost all the time, you know, the subjects say like, well, it's complicated and it's messy and it's, I feel very vulnerable, but it's honest. 
you know, and that's really what was going on. And so I think if we do that, we're, we're being the most um, ethical about it, we can be, but yeah, it's complicated. And I'm about to get on a plane and go up into the mountains again. And, you know, I'm trying to prepare my kids and, and my wife and get things set up to kind of disappear like that. Because the way I like to work, I really like to kind of dive in and disappear into a story. So it, it, it can be a little bit disorienting. Yeah, I, I, I say it a lot. I feel like I disappear into the work and then reemerge. It's, I have to be careful about that with the family. But that's the complicated, messy world of doc- documentary. Which... We're all kind of humbled and curious about the very exciting lifestyle that you live. I, I don't want to say exciting, but it's constantly new adventures. And uh... So thinking about the immersive documentary film style that you've been doing, what have been some of the most eye-opening experiences through all of your filming processes? Wow, eye-opening. I mean, there's just so much. I feel like watching documentaries is awesome. I learned so much watching a documentary, but it's it's much harder to make documentaries. So I'm having these wonderful experiences, but it's you're seeing the you're seeing all the parts of this of the experience, not just the finished, well presented angles. And so, yeah, it's 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 complicated, eye opening. I'm just continually inspired by the magic that can happen in a room if the camera i feel like if the camera is is like a sensitive presence in the room and i'm um, able to kind of have made a connection with the subject and they're able to open up you know there's just there's these moments where you can't believe that it's happening right in front of you and you know like they say you know you can't write this stuff and there's been just some real magic moments like that. We, we were making a film some years ago with Lennox Lewis, the heavyweight boxer, world champion heavyweight boxer. Really interesting guy, very complex, super smart. He's, you know, he retired at the top of his game at like 32 or something. And we were interested in this film about, okay, what, what does one do when you've accomplished exactly what you set out to do from your from a very young age and you're 32 and now you have this whole other life to do and we were there he and his wife had a had their baby and the baby was like two days old and we were in the room and here's this massive hulking boxer you know guy holding this tiny little newborn baby and I just was like man the ma- you know just the magic of being able to be there for that moment and to see that and there's there's many times where I'm like I gotta, I gotta keep filming. And I hope that my, you know, tears are not falling on the lens or my, my glasses are fogging up because it's just such a, you know, impactful moment on, on Strong Island, which was a much more difficult film about this great systemic injustice that of a young black man being killed and the family not receiving any uh, justice through the, the breakdown of the system. You know, that film was really intense to tell at certain points and and the filmmaker Yancey Ford and I were working together very intimately for seven years and it was often just Yancey and I working working by ourselves and we were doing scenes where Yancey was calling back to these prosecutors to try to find out what had happened to Yancey's brother because the court records were sealed and the family never got to know what had happened actually in this grand jury so it was a very loaded thing for Yancey. He had avoided this call for a dozen years and we were set up to film to try to capture this experience of him reaching out and hopefully learning a little bit about what happened uh, that day that William was killed. And we had a whole system set up where I could hear the phone call so that I knew what was going on, but we had tried to make a connection. We, had, we weren't able to get in touch with this person. And we were eating lunch in the other room when the phone rang and the person was calling back. And so we ran over and we didn't have the a microphone set up. So I filmed this whole scene just without knowing what was going on on the, on the, on the call. And at some point, you know, Yancey's hearing, taking in this, you know, this news, this, these details about it at the end of his brother's life and the phone call ends and, you know, Yancey is just totally breaking down. And there's my friend, you know, three feet away on the other side of the camera. And I don't know what was said. I don't know what's going on. And I'm like, and I just want to reach out and comfort my friend, but I'm like, I have to keep filming. You know, I have to keep for the goals of this film. I have to let this uncomfortable moment last and linger. And so that was really, 
really hard because I just so wanted to give my friend a hug and, you know, I, I couldn't. So, you know, it's just the range of emotions, ha- joy and despair. And yeah, just these insights into the human condition. It makes me feel, you know, like, okay, I, I, under- I understand better kind of the ups and downs of life and hopefully make help me be a better person, you know, more understanding, more empathetic person. Well, let's talk a little bit about the techniques because I you speak about spontaneity and and what you've built up through your experience and instincts, but there's just some things like the focus pull or the you know using the close shots or using the wide shots, and I don't know how controlled you can always be when you're in the moment and you don't don't get to really do retakes. You know, so how do you apply some of those skills from narrative filmmaking? It's still an art form, so you know how did how did you find that more effectively opened up certain scenes or certain stories for you? Like I said, I. I don't really try to make too much distinction between documentary and narrative technique. And I feel like the same, the same approach that I would do for a narrative film, if I can control more elements, I try to do in documentary. It's just that I just can't control them. So where there's a limit to what I can control. So, and again, when I, you know, actually working with Marshall Curry again, he has a great, he has a great approach, which is we're filming a documentary. We're about to go into you know someone's house and we don't know what's going to happen. But let's think about what we would like to happen. Like if you were scripting this scene in this story, what would you like? What would you what would we want to happen? Like, OK, well, this is, you know, we're going to go, you know, the family's going to have dinner and, you know, dad, the estranged dad's in town. So if this was if this was a movie that we could write, we would like, you know, we'd be amazing if dad comes in and sits down with the son and they have their heart to heart and there's some reconciliation happening there. Now that's not going to happen. You know, dad's not even coming over or, or not, but by thinking through that process of what we would like to happen and how that would feel and look in a scripted project, then when I'm in the room with the documentary camera, I'm thinking about that kind of backstory. And so I'm trying to I'm thinking about what I might do to cover this as a narrative scene. And so I think that helps with your storytelling, because then if there is a shot of the son, you know, looking kind of disappointed that he's sitting alone, I'm sure, you know, I want to get that shot. And I might, and that, because I know that there's a layer of story behind that look, I might choose to move the camera in a little bit, you know, or, or get a little closer or, frame him against the window so there's some silhouette happening and it's a little bit evocative or 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 there's a feeling of long longingness like that so i'm trying to think about those storytelling ideas from narrative while i'm making documentary and then also just the same technical ideas yes what does power of the moving camera mean for an image and what does what does a darker exposure mean what does a wider lens closer up mean or feel versus a longer lens further back. And I'm often, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking with the director early on about the goals for the film and about the perspective of the audience. Where, where do we want the audience to see this film from? And hopefully those goals are guiding the technical choices. So it might be that, okay, I know, I know that for this film, we want the audience to be in the experience. We want to be on the boat with scientists looking for a whale. So I want a small camera with a lightweight lens that can go wide and I can get close. We're going to be on a boat. So it's going to be, you know, probably pretty rocky, but we actually want some of that energy. So we want a handheld camera. We don't necessarily want too much stabilization. We want to feel the energy of this perhaps slightly out of control adventure. So, you know, I'm making technical choices and and equipment choices, hopefully that are reinforcing the goals of the of the filmmaking so again in strong island we we use camera movement or more specifically the lack of camera movement as a device to try to help tell the story of you know a family who had justice denied the family didn't get to know what happened to their son the family didn't get to know what happened in the justice system that failed their family and so we decided we're not we're going to restrict the audience in the same way we're not going to let the audience look around or know too much the camera's not going to pan or tilt. The camera's going to be locked into a frame and the action and the people might move out of the frame or and move into the frame and, and the camera's not allowed to react. And this idea was we're going to create, there's hopefully we're going to create this tension with the audience that, you know, we, you can't see everything. You're, you're not, 
you're not allowed the whole picture, which echoes the struggle of the family in the film. So for that film, I literally was using a, a still photo tripod that you could not pan or tilt on in a usable way. And that was a real breakthrough for me because often I'll put the camera up and compose a shot and start re recording. And then, you know, 10 seconds or five seconds later, think like, oh, actually, I want to tilt up a little bit and get that get that you know lamp in or the or the top of the roof whatever and and so i'm i'm tweaking it and i'm fidgeting and making it more more good or more you know more perfect or more balanced and we came up with this rule on strong island that whatever the camera lands on i have to roll for 60 seconds no matter what and because i can't do a smooth fluid pan or tilt of the camera i can't adjust it in the shot anyway and if someone moves starts to move out of frame I can't uh, smoothly move with them. So I'm going to let them, you know, get halfway out of the frame and we're going to, we're going to sit with that tension. And there's moments in the film where that happens. And, you know, everyone in the theater, like leans over to try to look around the frame, you know? And so I feel like creating that experiential tension was, was really a big part of that film. And so, yeah, giving myself the handcuffs of a tripod that you can't pan or tilt smoothly was a real, that was an equipment choice that directly was born from and led into the, the feelings that we were trying to create in the film. So, you know, there's so much great equipment now and we have more and more, you know, documentary has access to all the tools of cinema, like, you know, the camera movement and dollies and, you know, there's drones and, and great lenses. These are all available to us in documentary now in a way that, you know, that just wasn't for, for many, many years. We can use those tools or not. I think it's, I think it's also an important decision sometimes not to use the tool just because you can do drone shots very easily now you know doesn't mean you should and I think you know in Strong Island we had this rule where the camera wasn't going to move and what it does by having that restriction it gives you this tremendous power of when you do decide to move the camera and it's only about two-thirds of the way through the film where the camera moves in this very deliberate way and we talked a lot about what that moment would be and I find it's, I still find it's just a breathtaking moment when after, after an hour or something of this very lockdown, you know, rigid and rigorous visual style that the camera does this very, very slow move. And so, yeah. And in that case, we, you know, we brought in a dolly and it was actually, we wanted the move so slow that it was hard. It's hard to do a very slow move on a dolly. So it was actually a robotic dolly that could move very, very, very slowly. I think it moved about five feet in two minutes really slow uh, move. Yancy and I talked about the feeling of that shot as if the, as if the house was breathing or exhaling, like the, the spirits in the room were like being exhaled out of the room. So yeah, it's great that we have all of these tools. I, ideally, they're all working toward the goals of the film in a very kind of deliberate and intentional way. That's the kind of work I really like to do. Yeah, isn't it so beautiful when restrictions can yield artistry and you can look back on classic filmmaking as well when they're obliged to, you know, work on film, which you can say, oh, that's limiting and the editing process is certainly complicated. But then it adds this, there's this, a, a special magic of film that I now, I know that they are approaching it digitally, but it's still not the same thing that you get. Uh, so it, it makes you be really uh, creative uh, artistically. Yeah, and thinking about the idea of control or the lack of control in narrative filmmaking, how did you go about filming The Lonely's Whale, which is something that you can't really predict or you, can, or you don't really know what's coming out of it. So how did you go about filming it and making sure that you got the shots that you wanted of it? Well, yeah, a lot of it is that process I was talking about of, imagining what we would like to happen in the film. And even though you can't control that happening or you can't make that happen on cue like you can in the narrative film, it's still, I think, important to have that idea and that, and that process because then when the chaos is unfolding in front of you, you know, I'm hopefully being able to kind of see the one or, the one or two or handful of elements within that chaos that are meaningful toward that that the goal of the story. And then I can, I can lean into those moments and try to capture them. So yeah, like organizing chaos is something that I feel is a combination of prep preparation work that you've talked with the director 
has talked about the, her goals for the film. And I, I feel like my job is to kind of crawl into the director's head, do a, do a lot of talking in advance to kind of understand the aesthetic and the storytelling goals and the way that the director sees so that on set or, you know, in the field, I can be trying to channel what I understand the director's point of view and also, you know, our goals for the audience. And, and we can kind of do that separately. We have, I like to kind of try to make a mind meld because when we're on set and everything's evolving, you sometimes you can't literally speak because you're in a room recording sound and sometimes you can't even be in the same room. Sometimes the director is, is working ahead on, you know, with other subjects in the other room or, you know, doing the important work of kind of building rapport and trust. And I'm off doing, you know, working in a different space. So yeah, the, this idea of the preparation, having all of that kind of organized and filed away so that then when the chaos is happening, I can kind of, again, like I can pare down the palette into smaller, more manageable priorities. And it's about, it's really about giving yourself limitation. It's a beautiful artistic lever, you know, giving yourself less choices is, makes you be more innovative. And there was an interesting moment about, you know, 15 years ago when, you know, these, these small DSLR cameras were coming out and they could record pretty high quality video in a really interesting way with this large sensor, with, with this very cinematic, uh, you know, shallow depth of field and such. And people were taking them out and, you know, the cameras were designed for photojournalists to record a short video clip. And, but people were taking them out and making, you know, using them to film documentary and, 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 and even narrative work using them as a video camera, which they weren't designed to do. And so one of the things they couldn't do is they couldn't record sound the way a camera can, you couldn't record, or it wasn't easy to record sound in sync with this camera. And so we went through this period about 15 years ago where people started working again with double system sound, where there's the cameras over here rolling and the sound recorders over here rolling and they're separate devices. And the, and the sound is not in sync automatically. You have to go in the edit room and, and sync them up again. It's the way that films were made for a hundred years and since the, since the sounding started. But, and in documentary, it had always been that way where you're recording double system sound. But then we had camcorders that kind of did it all. And, and we got much more used to working with when, when the camera's rolling, the sound is being recorded. And I thought it was a really interesting time when, the, when those things were pulled apart again, because a lot of people you know, we're frustrated by it. They're like, I don't want to have a separate recorder. And then we got to sync it up after the fact. And, you know, it was just, it was a limitation. But I thought some of the work that was happening during that time was really, really interesting and innovative because, because the sound wasn't connected to the image. Editors and filmmakers were, were playing much more with those two and sliding them against each other and taking sound from one scene and putting it over other imagery. And you know, I think it really made it made that kind of explosion of visual documentaries about 15, 10 years ago really happen. Just this limitation of not being able to have sync sound for a couple of years. Now all the cameras can be synced again, but I think a lot of filmmakers are still preferring to work in that double system, which does have a lot of advantages. Limitations are, I think, a really great thing for pushing the art form forward. Certainly. And you've dealt with that kind of absence or silence. I think about some great scenes in cinema, Rififi, the breaking in scene. And we could be talking with you for, for ages about image making, but I know you're preparing for your next documentary. So just in closing, you know, as you think about the future and our current systems, the things you'd like to change, the lessons that have been important for you and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Thank you. I've been talking about how wonderful it is to be out in the world and see the, the messy, complicated, diverse world that we're all trying to understand. And one thing that's been hard for a lot of us filmmakers is that, that oftentimes the, the vista behind the camera doesn't reflect the vista in front of it. And there's a lack of diversity in filmmaking, which has been a problem since the beginning. And I'm really excited and hopeful now to see young people, especially really trying to break through that. And I, you know, I'm really heartened when I'm like a six foot white guy holding a camera in the room and I'm I'm just so glad that there's new storytellers that are going to be able to tell those stories and that I can step out of the room, you know, that I, this, this white guy doesn't have to be 
this conduit for for these stories. So I'm I I find it really really exciting that the documentary world I think is is leading in you know this change that for diversity and and representation and inclusion. It's got a long way to go for sure, and it's got problems where we think that we're too good at that when we're really not. But that change is happening, and it's 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 changing e even more slowly, but I think relentlessly in Hollywood too. And I'm just so excited by the the new storytelling that I'm seeing from people that haven't had a fair chance to tell their stories. And so I'm really hopeful, and I just want to I want to continue seeing that change. I'm trying to make my crews look more like the world in front of my cameras. I'm trying to bring those crews into the process as much as I can. And it's honestly, it's still hard. It's hard to do that. And the system is set up in a lot of this, has these legacies of exclusion, which are, are I'm finding really frustrating to have to try to work around. But ultimately, I think it's, it's it, it will happen. It has to happen. I think we all need to work together and make sure it happens. And a lot of that time means that I need to step out of the room. I need to not take that project or not make that shot. You know, I think all, a lot of us that have had the privilege to work in this in this field for so long need to be ready to get out of the way a little bit. You know, I love what I do, but I know that I'm going to love the work that's done when I'm not doing it too. So I guess I'm just, um, I'm really hopeful that documentary and filmmaking in general can be part of this cultural change that needs to happen in the country. You know, we can lead by example while we're while we're showing these all these stories that are going to make us a better a, a better you know country and a better culture, uh, hopefully that's hopefully that's on the move. Although we got we have a lot of work to do, I'll keep pointing the camera at as much, best I can. And we'll keep on enjoying your stories. Uh, so we don't want you to to hang up your camera just yet. You're you're a young man. So thank you, Alan Jacobson, for your example of lifelong learning, for inviting us behind the lens and sharing your process, telling these honest and complicated stories that need to be told so that we may feel closer to each other and the natural world. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for helping make the world a better place for future generations and adding your voice to the creative process. Thanks so much. What an honor. Thanks for saying that. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Lila Muskoski. Digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.